Welcome back to the show. My name is Michael Lin, and this is the MongoDB Podcast. Welcome to the premiere episode of the MongoDB Community Creator Spotlight Series. Today, we're embarking on an exciting journey, spotlighting the innovative minds in the MongoDB developer community. This series is part of the MongoDB Community Advocacy Program's Creator Tier, and it's a unique initiative designed to showcase developers worldwide who utilize MongoDB in various capacities. In today's episode, we're thrilled to have Jack War join us. He's an accomplished enterprise programmer and software developer. Jack's story is one of creativity, skill, and a deep understanding of MongoDB. Makes him a perfect fit for our community creator spotlight. This program empowers members like Jack to elevate their profiles and broaden their knowledge within the MongoDB ecosystem. If you're a developer using MongoDB and have a community contribution to share, we invite you to sign up for the program. There are links in the show notes. If you're enjoying the series or the podcast in general, would invite you to leave a comment and a rating. It's going to help us improve the show. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Jack War, a senior enterprise programmer consulting to Absolute Performance Incorporated and to the Sidon Group, LLC. Welcome to the MongoDB podcast. It's really exciting to chat with you, Jack. I know you've got a, a long and varied career that spans decades and a lot of different technology. What brings you to the MongoDB community? Well, about 2020, there was a possibility at Absolute Performance that we were going to do some partnering on MongoDB, and the COO said, what about it? And I said, well, I'll look. And uh, I and two DBAs started looking at it, and I ran through all the wonderful free tutorials that Mongo provides, and I was you know, very impressed by the, by the volume and quality of tutorial materials. So I just ran through them all, and I've got all all the badges, the completion certificates for them up on my website. And then I looked at, uh, we did we did a little bit of Mongo consulting, and then I looked at uh, my wife's website, which I'd written by hand in PHP, and it was based on uh, MySQL, later MariaDB. And I said, hmm, I wonder, you know, as an exercise, what it would take to turn this in to, to Mongo? And as I did it just for an exercise, I realized in the context of what I was doing, which was I was, my wife's a potter or we were selling pottery. And basically I had created this wonderful relational model for this website. And it didn't really make as much sense as a Mongo model because when you sell pottery, you're basically, it's as if you had a certificate of authenticity or something for a piece of art. And, you know, you have the name of the piece of art and you have the, 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 the colors and the technology, you know, because it's different firing techniques and different clays. And you have the price and you have some other information, some notes, and you have the PayPal bug. And you have all these things. And it's just like as if you had a sheet of paper that was the certificate of authenticity. Hmm. And like a, Mongo's like a, a document. document. A document. <laughs> yeah, it's a do- Mongo's <laughs> a document management system. And I said, you know, at, from habit, you know, of course, I did a relational model and I said, this is more trouble than it's worth. And Mongo makes perfect sense. So I did this first, I did a straight across translation of the extant model to Mongo. Um, and I'd written my own, you know, data object, my, my own data layer manually in PHP. And it was trivial to, you know, mm-hmm. to create a map across. As a matter of fact, I used, uh, you know, I wrote a program in Python that just took my tables and turned them into, you know, collections. So I, I, you know, I just automated, turned all my collections, you know, in in a day, into Mongo, mm-hmm. and 
And then I rewrote my data layer so it did, you know, aggregation instead of SQL. Hmm. And it was very nice. And then I looked at it and I said, well, suppose I rewrote this all so it really was Mongo, a Mongo-like model instead of an SQL-like model done in Mongo. And then I did that. And I'm still working on that, you know, some years later because it, it led me to a whole discovery of I was going to redo the GUI. And I'm, I'm, I'm getting into Vue.js. Of course, I'm off into explorations and learning TypeScript and all those wonderful things, you know, that yeah. you swallow the spider to catch the fly. And, and <laughs> right. you're, you're, just, you're just off in... And that's why I do these things, because it enhances my professional skill set. You have to keep growing in this industry, yeah. because like the Red Queen in Alice in Wonderland, you got to run much faster than that to stay in one place. Absolutely agree. So having worked across many different architectures, I know you spent some time in the in the mainframe space. What do you think in when you start to think about structuring your data? Well, it depends upon what the mission is. If I'm writing a, you know, Mongo really helped me, you know, think about some things I hadn't really re-examined in a while. You know, I come from the the straight SQL relational database model, and that's very rigorous, and it's mathematically defined and was defined by C.J. Dayton E.F. Cobb back in like 1969, 1970, which became SQL around 1980. And SQL really came on like gangbusters around 1984 to 1988. Before that, of course, we had tables and we had all kinds of ways of doing relational models. And it was often done by hand. Very often the tables, the tables were program defined. There wasn't an external document describing the structure of the table and how many characters across a row was the name and how many characters across was the social security number and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So you had these, uh, you know, uh, program described tables, and then they got into describing them with external descriptions. And then SQL, of course, everything's externally described. And so the data, the relational databasing model over the decades became much more rigorous. And the math of it was very well worked out, relational calculus, relational algebra, Mm-hmm. And so I come to Mongo and, 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 you know, I was impressed by a quote from Pete DeJoy. He said, MongoDB was born out of, out of our frustration using tabular databases in large complex production deployments. We set out to build a database that we would want to use so that whenever developers wanted to build an application, they could focus on the application and not working around the database. Elliot Horowitz, okay, the founder yeah of Mongo said that, Mm -hmm. I quoted in the short history of MongoDB by Pete DeJoy. And, you know, that's, you see that pattern over and over again in programming, a new model comes and they say, you're free, you know, you can do anything and (laughs) and we're not going to stop you. Yeah. You see that in JavaScript, you know, JavaScript had an appeal well beyond simply writing little widgets in the browser. And a lot of young programmers in the nineties and two thousands were fascinated with JavaScript because there were kind of no rules. It was just, you know, mm-hmm. it, you just did whatever you wanted. And as the space matures, you see they bring in things like TypeScript and all of a sudden Java is a strongly typed language and stuff. So, and you see that in Mongo, you, you start off, you can do anything you want, but if you're going to do anything serious, well, you better use validation. And then all of a sudden you're writing validation because real business programming, real enterprise programming, you have to do belt and suspenders. You have to check your mm-hmm. inputs as they're coming in through the web. You have to check them in your program code. And the last ditch is you, you, you type very carefully your data entries so that 
nothing comes in that isn't the right type that can make your code blow up in production. Yeah. So, yeah. You, so, so, so it's it's like re reexamining the whole model again, and it has some strengths and it has some weaknesses, and I've I've very much enjoyed exploring all that. Yeah. Now you you're using the term programmer quite a bit, and I'm used to this term. I started my career as a systems programmer. Is a programmer the same thing as a, a developer, an engineer? How, how do those roles differ, do you see? Well, I think that the, the terminology has changed since I started, obviously. You know. uh, <laughs> at one point in my, you said, what was it, varied career, I would say checkered, perhaps. Uh, at one point, I, I, was a, I, was a, I was a bus driver, and they were calling them transit operators. This is way back in the 70s in Seattle, <laughs> yeah. I was a bus driver. And one of the old shop stewards came to me and said, the problem with this place is there are too many transit operators around here and not enough bus drivers. <laughs> you know, so, so you, so, uh, <laughs> I love it. so, so you, you see that a little bit, I, you and I discussed before when we were talking previously, something that surprised me in the 1990s when I w hired a developer who was a very good Java programmer. And I realized at some point when he got frustrated and stalled and I had to help him on, 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 unhang himself that he didn't know how a computer worked. And that was the first time I'd found myself working in a space with, you know, with a, a developer who didn't know how a computer actually worked at the electrical level. Had, didn't have something, mm -hmm. you know, pretty good, pretty good idea. You don't know everything because nobody knows everything. But as Stephen Wright says, you can't have everything. Where would you put it? But, but uh, it surprised me. And nowadays when I interview young, young developers, I ask them, do you know how a computer works? And nine out of 10 say no. So mm, the programmers, yeah. you know, when I started programming, computers were unreliable and you sometimes debugged your program <laughs> with an oscilloscope to see if the address lines were cross-talking, literally. I, I, I'm serious. This, is, this was part of a lot of what I did early on in the career was that, you know, you couldn't really count that the hardware was actually executing your instructions correctly. That it wasn't just your program. There could be something wrong with the machine. And uh, that era ended. Uh, PC, PCs didn't really entirely become reliable until about 1990. And then that ended. And then all of a sudden you had a lot of people in the field who didn't have to know this stuff to be effective, you know, productive in the, in the workplace immediately, providing they had the training and the tools. Before that, computer science courses at college were part electronics and they were part the theory, you know, lam lambda Lambda functions and stuff for Lisp, and they teach you to Pascal, which was a, with the original programming virtual machine and stuff like that. And they teach you all this stuff, and people would come to the work, but they didn't have any useful skills for actual production programming. And then the colleges changed, and they began turning out software developers instead of computer scientists. They also turned out computer scientists, but they started turning out a lot of software developers who were workplace ready. And a lot of these people, you know, didn't know how, how, how computers work. So when I say, you know, programmer, I, I mean what people mean nowadays, developer, except that I kind of think of it as including understanding every step of the path from the, what you write to how the compiler translates it to the, to, the, to the meta code, to the assembly code, to the, you know, down through the, the ROM instruction set on the processor, because all processor instruction sets are virtual nowadays. The actual logic of the chip is, is limited. And there's a you know, ROM program that executes your assembly level instructions down to the transistors. And so that, that kind of, you know, that, that kind of is what I mean by programmer, but it isn't really necessary to be productive in the workplace. Yeah, I see that shift. 
it's this evolution and it it starts in the physical in most cases and and the workload shifts and and varies and changes from from being entirely human to machine assisted to largely machine driven and i think we're headed toward that with the advent of ai and and machine learning how do you see that in terms of your evolution are you comfortable in this space today where uh, vs code and code assistance exist and you really don't have to know a whole lot about the underlying architectures and machinery how do you see, are you comfortable with this evolution well one of the wonderful things about being a, a software developer programmer whatever you want to call it is that what you're being paid to do is learn constantly that's your job because the sand is shifting under your feet at all times and uh, it happens very rapidly. So I'm, I embrace change as a workplace habit. It's a, it's a, you know, it's, you know, what, you know, good, good, good workplace hygiene. If you are a developer mm -hmm. is to embrace change. If you sit there and say, this is the way it should be. I like it that way. Stop world. <laughs> Stop. It's not going to happen. You can't make yeah. it happen. King Canute with the tide. He told the tide go back, but it came in and you know embraced his throne. Change will embrace you if you don't embrace change. So yes, the AI code pilot is very interesting. I think ChatGPT is tremendously overblown. You know, it's 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 more like you know I always say we're spending too much money on artificial intelligence when we've got an inexhaustible supply of genuine ignorance in the world. And <laughs> uh, you know, but. But one thing that happens, you brought up an interesting point, you know, you don't have to know the underlying machine architecture. I think that that, to a certain extent, is an illusion of the uh, web developer. Okay. The truth, the truth is when you, 90% of the world's trade to this day runs on mainframe or mainframe-like computers, 90%. Mm -hmm. And that is an environment where quantity becomes quality, if you see what I mean. You know, a Mongo document can be 16 megabytes. You know, well, you can have like, you know, multiple petabyte databases in the enterprise world. These are where they keep all your social security payments, you know, since the year 1955 kind of thing. These are huge, huge databases, very, very rigorously designed and stuff like that. And there's all this... And, and it becomes inseparable from the machinery at a certain point. You have to understand at that level, you have to understand what's possible with the physical machinery to deal with data at that volume. And so you find that, you know, people who work in the mainframe and mid-range space are maybe a little bit more hardware aware other than, you know, oh, I got the latest NVIDIA card. This is cool. You know, they're really aware of like, you know, how many net cards they've got in the machine and how they're configured. And, you know, hmm. you have to be aware of this to move this much data all day, day in and day out without failure. And all this stuff is, you know, hot swap and stuff like that in this world. And so you never really get away. The, the, the idea that software exists in some cloud space without any physical architecture under it is a is a vanity of the web world and the web world and the enterprise world are closely welded together but there's a lot more to the world than the web world we always have to be very very aware of the hardware realities to do what we do 
So I'm, I welcome, so, you know, I welcome being assisted in the code, especially since I deal with legacy languages and it's very helpful, you know, to, you know, my COBOL is mediocre. It's good to have some help from CodePilot on COBOL and RPG, the older languages, when I have to go in and look at them, I'm glad to have the tools, but it's not, it's not a panacea. It doesn't mm -hmm. fix everything. Yeah. It, it fixes, it makes it easier to bring young people in to dealing to some extent with these legacy languages. They don't have to write new programs in them, but every once in a while they have to mm -hmm. look at them and try to figure out what was going on in them. And I'm glad that the AI is there. It's much easier. You know, the search engines are going to get better on Google and everything like that. It's going to be easier and easier to find information on this really recondite stuff that I have to deal with. And I'm, I yeah. very much welcome it. What do you see for the future of developers? I mean, some people are, are seeing this dystopian reality where the importance of knowing syntax is going to be reduced because machines will be writing code for us. Well, you know, I don't I regret that, you know, because I've, for instance, I've been programming in Java since Java was released and I couldn't pass a closed book test on Java. I've written millions of, literally, literally, I can show you millions, my open source stuff, you know, I've written millions of lines of Java and I still couldn't pass an open, a closed book test without being able to look things up because I've, I've programmed in a lot of languages. To this day, you know, PHP, Python, and JavaScript have very, very similar syntax. People who are very deep in one or the other will say, no, they're not. But yes, they are. If you've done a lot of languages, they look very similar. And I'm constantly throwing JavaScript and syntax into PHP <laughs> and PHP syntax into Python. And so if the editor wants to correct me, thank you. You know, you know thank yeah. you for the help. That, that, you know, that's fine. To the extent that the world becomes dystopian, I'm less concerned with the encroachment of automated tools because everything that I ever did has become automated beyond what I used to do. I keep, you know, I, it's like you're surfing, you're riding this wave and you're, you're, yeah. you're still going through. And if you're really committed to it, and if you are a person who can learn throughout their whole career and keep learning, you're fine. Just keep your balance. Don't get sucked off into, oh, this is the latest thing. You know, it just, just mm -hmm. keep your balance and keep focused on the job and keep focused on what's useful and try to do things. You know, simplicity is not the only programming virtue, but it's the greatest virtue. Use do it the simplest way you can possibly do it, and you'll be fine. It doesn't matter. The dystopian stuff I see is there's a lot of problems nowadays that are external to the programming world. And that's the thing developers don't always handle well. A lot of them have had heavily technical educations, and they maybe skipped the humanities courses or slept through them, <laughs> and they have trouble handling asymmetric problems, you know, where you've got to compare you know, programming skills with programming enthusiasms, with with a schedule, with the boss's temper, with the customer's patience, and you have to balance, and with money, you have to balance all these asymmetric, you have to, you have to add apples to oranges all the time in the real development world, and not everybody's good at that. And one of the asymmetric problems that, two asymmetric problems that are intruding in our discipline that will be very problematic, I believe, in the next few years. One is security. It's becoming, it's just, mm -hmm. it's just overwhelming. And two is, well, here comes the government. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> oh boy, they've got ideas of what's security and what's not too. And they aren't always what the people who are technical experts think it is. You know, they have different, yeah. you know. So, so I think we're going to be dealing with more and more regulation because of security. Yeah. And that's going to be the most annoying thing in our trade in the next few years. 
Yeah. I'm going to assume that there are folks listening that may not have the wealth of experience that you do. What advice would you give to someone entering the developer workspace today? Enjoy yourself. If it ain't fun, don't do it. The real and the real advice. I mean, that's that's kind of like you know how you keep your balance, keep your sense of humor, keep your balance, keep learning things. But there's two things that count. You have you know you have no stock in trade. You're not a leather worker. You don't have a bunch of belts that you've made that are sitting there hanging there ready for to sail. You have two things when you're a developer. You have your skills and and your ability to focus your skills and do things efficiently and do things correctly. And you have your reputation for ethics. Never screw your employer. Stay with it. You, if you're with the organization, be totally loyal to the organization. If you can't be totally loyal to the organization, leave. Excuse yourself and leave. You only have two things. You have your skill set and you have your reputation. And guard them. They are your gold treasure buried in your backyard. That's what they are. Your skill set mm. and your reputation. We talk a little bit about the document model versus RDBMS, the legacy or traditional uh, tabular model. I think these represent philosophical differences in approaches to data storage and manipulation. And prior to turning the microphone on, we had a, a conversation about this. I wonder if he can expand on the philosophical differences that, that we were talking about earlier today as it relates to, to the document model versus the relational model. Well, if you're, if you have a lot of relational things, I think it's, if, first of all, ignoring the constraints of size and stuff like that, pretending that they're, you know, if we ignore the constraints of size compared between a really, really mature RDBMS, mm -hmm. you know, DB2, Oracle, to a lesser extent, Microsoft SQL, and, and the limitations of this new model, Mongo, which has some you know, pr pretty strong constraints upon its size in, in some regions. If you ignore that, either one translates to the other. They're equivalent. You know, you can store the same, you might have to stand on your head a few times and, you know, and, and twirl around, but you, they both work for anything, any conceivable data model you work. It's a question of what is more appropriate to the job. If you're running, mm -hmm. what happens in the in in the enterprise world is that the you know the 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 mainframes and the mid-range computers they have their own user profiles and they have their own security system and they have all this and web applications don't use that. Web applications have their own uh, you know their own database of users and roles that they can have and then when they decide that they've authenticated the user using OpenAuth or something uh, uh, whatever it is JWT tokens they then talk to the back end and say, Hey, I need a user record. Okay. Well, give me, you know, give me a token. I say, well, we, we've authorized this user with this token for these roles. And then the back end checks it and says, do I agree with that? Yes, I agree with it. Here's your purchase order. This user can edit it. This user cannot edit it and stuff like that. So, so there's two, really two separate databases. There's a database that runs the web application itself. And then there's the database that has the real, you know, business data in it. But the, Web application needs its own database, and it needs to keep track of users, needs to keep track of their roles, needs to keep track of how many times they've logged on, needs to keep track of how many times they failed to log on, all these things. 
And stuff like that fits beautifully into a document model. The user is just a document mm -hmm. and every, mm -hmm. their whole history and everything is a beautiful document. So in the enterprise, we're, we're using Mongo, but we're using it on Linux and stuff like that for the front end mm -hmm. database. And then the real you know, business data is in the back. <laughs> it's in the back end on the, on the mainframe and stuff like that. Yeah. Because when you get to a certain, like I said, I'm, we're, we're in the world, we're in the place where quantity becomes quality. You know, you get big enough mm -hmm. and just big is a quality. It's not just pink and green and blue. It's big is, is one of the qualities you have to deal with. And you have all these relations. You have customer relationships that go back decades. And there's all kinds of things that have happened and all kinds of change in your sales models and all kinds of change in your billing practices and all kinds of change in government regulation. And you have hundreds of tables that have kept track of something or other along the way and this is you know this is a relational model you have you, the customer is the customer they, you have the name of the customer and you have their customer id that's one table just that and that customer <laughs> id is a foreign key to all these other tables that you've done all kinds of stuff with and they have keys between each other because some of them don't deal directly with customers some of these tables have all sorts of information that have to do with how how you track your your sales and stuff like that suppose that suppose the thing you sell is government regulated and then you have to do all this stuff so there's all these relations going all over all over the way crisscross through it and you get to something like that and it suddenly becomes difficult to first of all to think of it in a document model it, it becomes a real scientific relational model and if you lose control mm -hmm. of it <laughs> you bring yeah. in the consultants by the by the dozens to sit there and go and remap your database so, so that you figure it and it, you know that's kind of, that's kind of the difference between, between yeah. these two kinds of models, what you can have. What if the document model were available when these large scale systems were being developed? I'm wondering if the right tool for the job would have been MongoDB from the very beginning. That's a very good thought, Michael. And if it had been what people were doing, then the 50 years of development that has been done <laughs> on the RDBMS model would have been done on the Mongo model instead. And you'd have all these, you know, wealth of tooling and mathematical descriptions and stuff like that. And you'd have a meta language. You'd have a meta language that was designed for Mongo because essentially what Mongo is now is kind of like what things were, you know, decades ago before SQL. Mongo is essentially, MongoDB programming is essentially procedural. I mean, there's some there's some declarative aspects to it, but if if I'm clear about if we're clear about the difference between declarative and procedural languages, explain what you mean by that for the folks that may not be following. Well, declarative procedural languages, and that was the way you know, COBOL, RPG, mm -hmm. any language you can name. It, 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 you you have you have a recipe and you have steps, and you say, I do this, do this, do this, mm -hmm. do this, do this. And declarative languages like SQL say, this is my description of the data set I want. You, the, the relational database management system, must structure the steps by which this, is, this, this question is answered. And I don't care. And you, you, you implement it in terms of whatever the underlying architecture is of the database. And that's what, that's what SQL is. And 
whereas you know the Mon MongoDB programming, essentially you, you sit there and say steps. The, 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 the one that makes it obvious is project. Mm -hmm. Project only exists because you have to say that you're trying. You're sitting there optimizing your own query. You're sitting there saying, "Look, I don't need all this other stuff that was in in that document. I just need these because that's less to handle and it'll run faster." You know, you wouldn't need is you're sitting there and you're optimizing your own query by hand in the procedural recipe uh, for the query. So what would have happened if MongoDB had been started off as being the the model like an RDBMS? Uh, people would have found ways to write a query language. I'm sure one will be written. I'm sure that some mm -hmm. meta language will evolve and probably MongoDB is working on it right now. I wouldn't be surprised if in the back room or if they already have it and I didn't hear about it, that would also not surprise me. I know that there are SQL drivers for MongoDB. Well, maybe something like that. I don't know. But, it, you know, there would be much more. So the answer is if it had happened 50 years ago, yes, there would be much more there would be much more tooling and there would be much more understanding and there'd be, you know, tried and true design patterns as there are. in. Mm. If you design a lousy yeah. SQL, RDM, you know, RDBMS database nowadays, it's your own fault. It's not for lack of, you know, <laughs> everybody knows how this works, who knows how it works. And there's not really yeah. a lot of questions about it. There's not really a lot of mysteries about how you design a database if you're doing it in, in, in an RDBMS. Now there are lots yeah. of interesting questions in Mongo. I just answered one on the forum the other day. The fellow says, well, the, the quiz says, you know, if you have a customer and you have a number of transactions associated with them, do you sit there and put the customer there and, and the customer's address and this and then a transaction, the transaction, the transaction, or do you put the customer and their address and this and this and then an array of transactions or do you put the customer and and this and this and then do you put an array of sub documents that represent a transaction and of course that you know one of the correct answers for the quiz was you want an array of sub documents each of which represents a transaction and that's the design mm -hmm. pattern now okay now what happened well your limit of a mongo document is 16 megabytes well you know the kinds of transactions that you deal with the mainframe well that's pretty funny you know, 16 <laughs> megabyte limit so of course so so let's say mongo didn't let's say the MongoDB didn't stretch that size, you could find ways to deal with it. You'd have, you know, documents linked to documents, linked to documents. And then mm -hmm. you'd suddenly realize why people used RDBMSs when you got started to, man you know, maintain the code for that. So I imagine yeah. MongoDB will evolve and it will, you know, because obviously the MongoDB leadership wants to move it into the enterprise space. And we know you're there and we understand that mm -hmm. desire, but there's mm -hmm. a lot of work to be done. I know that you you do spend a lot of time in the forums. Where else do you get your information about MongoDB? By using it, and by mm. also I, I play with Atlas and I discover things from Atlas that you know they aren't really part very much of the community edition and stuff like that. And I've I've downloaded. I used to build Mongosh and I used to build Compass all the time myself. Mm -hmm. I download the source and build it because I'm from the open source community. So open source, <laughs> right. you know, download a package. Give me a break. I'm going to build it. I'm going to see how it builds. And so I understand how these tools work. And I'm very, very impressed by Compass and Mongosh. They're, they're, they're lovely. I'm very impressed by the tooling. That One of the nice things about dealing with MongoDB has been that, you, that, that MongoDB didn't do it by half measures. They knew, apparently knew what they had to do or learned very quickly what they had to do. I wasn't there at the beginning. And 
they filled in their echo space. They filled in their echo space. There's great documentation. Mm-hmm. The forums are there. Atlas is there. There's they they, they st- structured the business deal right. Okay, I can play with Atlas all I want. You know, until I get to a certain scale and I want to actually use it for business, mm-hmm. then I have to pay for it. So the business deal is nicely structured. The documentation is nicely structured. The tool set is nicely structured, and it just gets better and better all the time. So, so it's not really hard to learn about Mongo, and I get surprised by some of the questions. I interpret them as you know panicky questions by someone who's on a deadline, because <laughs> if they weren't on a deadline, they could just figure it out because it's all there, and that's how I did it. I figured it out, yeah. and, and you have to stop it. And really, to get into this, because it is different, it is different. All the NoSQLs are different from one another. So if you're going to go into the NoSQL mm-hmm. world, you know, you're not going to be in the crowd where everybody's working at RDBMS and everybody knows how it works, and you're surrounded by people in NoSQL. No, you, you picked a NoSQL database. You know, you picked Hadoop or you picked something. You picked MongoDB. You have to do all the tutorials. You just have to do them. Mm-hmm. You have no choice. Yeah. And, and not just the ones about programming. You want to do the ones about deployment because, again, there's never software without hardware. You better understand how sharding works. If you want to understand MongoDB, mm-hmm. you must understand how sharding works and replication works and all these things, it's how, how you scale yeah, MongoDB. Essential, especially if you're going to build something that could potentially scale. Everything potentially scales. You don't think it's going to when you write it the first time, but it does. <laughs> exactly. That's like, I, I set out to write the, the bug-free code. It just, yeah. it just doesn't seem to happen. But so, Jack, what's next for you in the world of MongoDB? What are you building today? Well, I'm still working on my wife's website. I mean, it doesn't require a lot of more work on MongoDB because we have a very simple document model. And I wrote mm-hmm. that layer in 2020, 2021, and it still works. You know, mm. it, I haven't had to Im- improve it. Uh, you know, the, it, I've, I've looked at my aggregation pipelines. It's possible a couple of them could be a little more efficient, but mostly I'm satisfied with it. And I am, I'm involved with, okay, so that's what I'm working with. And then there's stuff I can't talk about that I'm working with, but there are people in the enterprise space who are using MongoDB and it is mm-hmm. making some penetration because one of the challenges in the enterprise space is bringing in young programmers and you make young programmers productive in the enterprise space by giving them something to do that you need that they already know how to do. And then you slowly absorb them into the Borg of, of this, you know, legacy knowledge on these very, very modern systems that have very, very many decades of software running on them. You know, mainframes and mm-hmm. mid-range computers, they're extremely modern, they're extremely efficient, they're incredibly power efficient. The po- There's nothing more powerful in the business world than an IBM Z. There just isn't, you know, Mm -hmm. these are huge computers and they're more efficient than a room full of servers that you would need and tell servers to to do the same amount of work. But then you have to deal with that environment, which is very weird and evolved from the 1960s. There's still stuff there that basically was part of IBM OS 360 in 1963. You know, there's still (laughs) elements of it that work kind of the same way. So one of the things you could do is that if you're writing, you know, web extent, you know, web presentation, the green screen is disappearing and, you know, web presentation is everything. Everything is a web application nowadays. So when you talk to users, whether they're internal or external, you have to write web interfaces and you write web interfaces by writing APIs on the back end, you Mm -hmm. know, the the mainframe. And then the mainframe talks to the web application through an API gateway. And then the web application is being written by people in their twenties. You're just hired and you're bringing them into your world. 
And so mm-hmm. MongoDB is definitely there because people coming people coming in are starting to know it. They're starting to know it, yeah. so it's a good way to do things. And you yeah. say, yeah, yeah, okay. Well, we're going to write a new web application. It's going to have to have its own authorization system. You're going to have to use JWT and stuff. Write the user database in Mongo. If you like that, you may do that. The web application can be anything. It just has to know how to call the APIs. And the APIs are all described in Swagger documents. It's all open API. So you don't even have to know what a mainframe is. You never have to have seen one. You don't have to know they exist to write these applications. You just have to know the API. But of mm. course, you bring someone in and then they start to know. And then you absorb them into the into the mainframe culture and the mainframe way of doing things, which is that it's got to work and you can't drop a, a, you can't drop a thousandth of a penny on a rounding error. Mm-hmm. That's Zero our- downtime. Zero yeah. downtime. <laughs> well, Jack, it's been a great conversation. Is there anything you want to share with the audience that we haven't talked about? I would say that I have a lot of confidence that MongoDB is going to be around for a while because I see I, I see a management that is focused on the core issues. I see a I see a development team that's very capable, and I see a community team that is very engaged, and I see a large and ever increasing number of new users coming to MongoDB, and for good reasons. It's it's a very it's a very nice no SQL kind of environment. And if that's what you're looking for, Mm. and for the kinds of problems that have to be solved in rote web programming these days, Mongo is a fabulous solution and it's a lot of fun. It's Mm. very interesting. It's very, it's very challenging and interesting to even an old programmer. I find it (laughs) enjoyable and I think that it's going to be around for a while. Well, I I greatly appreciate your perspective and spending some time with me today. Thanks, Jack. Michael, thanks for the invitation. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thanks so much to Jack for joining us today. If you're interested in the MongoDB Community Advocacy Program, check the show notes. There's links. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day.